Before I begin the formal talk, just a couple suggestions about how to practice while listening to the talk. You could try, um, personally I really encourage sensing the body, listening through the body, feeling your body while you're here. Maybe put 100% of your attention on your body. And notice if what, when you do that, if you put most or 90 or 100% of your attention on your body, notice if you can still hear me. Does that work for everybody? Right? If you pay attention to your body, sense your body, be mindful of the body. Notice how if, you know, the mic works, I'm speaking loud enough, your ears are working, that you don't have to do the listening. And then as you're sensing your body, if you keep putting most of your attention there, you can notice what happens if you keep doing that when you open your eyes and kind of look in my direction. And pretty much, without having to do anything, here I am. You, you see me. So that if we center in our physicality, in our somatic experience, and things are working normally, then we can hear and then we can see without having to do the seeing and hearing. It just happens. It's natural. And as we go through the talk this evening, that may, this practice may become even more relevant as we start to look at what's, what's seeing and what's hearing if we're not doing it. What's knowing my words if you're just sitting here with your body? What's seeing this image as you stay with your physical presence? And I don't just mean the eyes and ears. Because also, even if you stay with your body and you hear me and see me, you're also comprehending me. It's not just that you hear the words. You're understanding them. And you're maybe having a thought, a reaction, an idea, liking them, not liking them. All kinds of things are happening as you stay with your body. So the effort here is to stay present and allow the functioning to happen naturally. We've been looking at the workings of the different centers. The body, the heart, the head. The head center has a number of different attributes the center of awakening, wisdom, of clear seeing, knowing, understanding, the center of equanimity, 
actually the equanimity, just so it's clear, actually is, is related to both the heart and the head center. The Brahma Viharas, it's related to the heart center. In the, in the factors of awakening, it's related to the head center. In the, in the progress of insight, it's related to the deepening of the insight. It's a stage on the movement towards stream entry or the first stage of enlightenment. And the, and the opening of the eye of wisdom is sometimes talked about as mahasati, great mindfulness. Seeing clearly, seeing beyond our habit, beyond our conditioning, beyond the distortions that we often overlay onto reality to begin to see objectively. And all of this relates in some way or another, different ways, to the mind, the opening of the mind or the freeing of the mind. And probably you'll get, maybe if we looked on all the Buddhist books, which there are a lot of these days on the web or in a library, we'd find a lot of books that had heart in the title and a lot of books that had mind in the title. Because these have been the major emphasis, I believe, in Buddhist awakening, the awakening of the heart and mind. The body's coming along slowly. We're bringing it along. We're working at it. So I want to talk about the mind, the nature of mind, the luminosity of mind tonight. The luminosity of mind that's sitting in your seat. It's already here. But I'll begin by talking about how the mind, how we use the word mind conventionally in our society. We talk about the mind as having to do with the faculties of intellect. We talk about the mind that's rational, or the mind that's analytic, or the mind that's uh, cogent, or logical mind. There's certain ways that we have been trained to use the mind. And they're, they're all good, pragmatic, practical, logical, you know, really good ways to use the mind. And then there's all kinds of um, ways that we think, especially when we're sitting here practicing, we notice the thinking mind or the planning mind, or the wanting mind, or the wishing mind, or the aversive mind, or the discussing mind, or the commentating mind, or the, the mind of memory, or the discursive mind is the mind that rambles. Have you noticed that mind while you sit here? Ever notice how you're sitting here, sitting here, and there's a little, and it's hot. Wow, it's really hot today. The mind starts to tell us things, right? It starts to talk about reality. Oh, it's really hot. I remember when it used to get hot like this in Detroit. <coughs> but it was, it, was, it was a lot, it was more thick in Detroit. It was, like, it was like a sauna in Detroit when it got hot like this. This is nice. This is beautiful. But I kind of liked those nights in Detroit when it was really thick and... 
the lemonade. I used to drink this lemonade that my Aunt B used to make. It was really good lemonade, cold, fresh. We had a lemon tree in Detroit. People didn't know you could have lemon trees in Detroit in the backyard. Wow, maybe I should plant a lemon tree. I think maybe I have to get a yard first to do a lemon tree. But it'd be nice on a night like this, even though in San Francisco we never have nights like this. Right? The mind. It just, this is a discursive mind. This is, actually, there's a beautiful word in Pali for this mind. It's called papancha. Papancha. It's a discursive mind or the mind that just will go anywhere. It just goes. It's part of what minds do if they're untrained in a certain way. Now, in Buddhism, another way that we use the word mind, which you've heard many times so far in this retreat, is mindfulness. Mindfulness, a fullness of mind. And it actually, I'm, I'm going to tie this into the etymology of the word mind, which I found fascinating when I researched it, which is that, um, so, so mindfulness, one of the, mean, the meanings of mindfulness is really to embrace experience. To hold in mind is, is a good understanding of mindfulness. It's a knowing of experience, being in contact with that experience, both with our body and our heart and our mind. That, that it's a total experience, the knowing. It's not a distant experience. It's a fullness of mind. And interestingly enough, in the this is really a tangent, but I have to say it, Interestingly enough, the etymology of the word mind from the Greek, originally the mind was always located in the body, in the torso. That, that, and it meant literally to hold in mind. It was the same idea. And then slowly over the years of, quote, progress, and I believe individuation, the mind has risen up. In, in, at least in Western culture. It's very interesting that way. But, so, we've been practicing mindfulness. We've been practicing holding in mind. And one way we can understand mindfulness is that it's a subset of, of awareness. It's a function of awareness. It's knowing what we're aware of. Like we're sitting here, but to be mindful is to know that we're sitting here. We know we're sitting here, but it's to know it in a very direct way, a very full way. Being aware of what we're aware of as we pay attention. Another definition of mindfulness, uh, very traditionally, is to recollect or to remember. So, and, and maybe I should back up the word that's translated as mindfulness is sati. And sati is also translated as reflection or recollection. And here, um, here the emphasis is similar. It's about wholeness. When we remember, it's like we've lost a limb and, we're, and it's reattached. We're remembered. We become whole. It's to become whole with the present moment, to become fully one with what's here in the present moment, to embrace it fully. 
So remembering in this way, sati in this way, mind in this way, brings a unification of awareness and experience, physical experience, emotional experience, um, um, mental experience. There's a wholeness here, a presence that comes. The third foundation of mindfulness specifically addresses mindfulness of mind. Mindfulness of mind. And Adrian spoke to it today. This is mindfulness of mental states, moods, emotions. This is all, in in Buddhism, emotions, moods, feelings are all under mindfulness of mind. And um, it's also the quality of one's mind, the atmosphere of mind. And the Buddha is very objective. This is an important part of both mindfulness and the being mindful of the mind. It's very objective. It's not judgmental or preferential. He simply is very encouraging us to be very clear about what is precisely here in a moment. Is the mind open or the mind closed? Is the mind relaxed or the mind tense? Is the atmosphere of mind clouded by longing or unclouded by longing? Is the mind um, peaceful or not peaceful? Is the mind concentrated or unconcentrated? And I'm almost using his exact words. He doesn't say, oh, peaceful is good, unpeaceful is bad. He He says this over and over again, the practitioner knows The practitioner, sometimes it's translated as the practitioner comprehends or understands or knows the mind, as Philip would say, echoing Ajahn Sumedho, the mind is like this. Whether it's open, closed, tense, relaxed, concentrated, unconcentrated. What the mind is, is less important than the knowing of what's here as it's here. And that's the third foundation of mindfulness and how the mind is talked about. And it can have, and it it really includes the um, the emotions, the fear or anger or lust or or the lack of that, the peace or the joy. Then mind is also used in terms as a, and this is the word citta, in terms of consciousness. And there are, I don't want to get too technical here. There's a couple different ways it's used. One is that when there's a sound and an ear, you have hearing consciousness. Or if there was a flower and a nose, you might have smelling consciousness. Or if there's an eye and an object, there's seeing consciousness. That's one way it's used. The other way which is much broader, is they talk about consciousness not dependent on consciousness. That there's a kind, like the first first kind of consciousness I described is dependent on these three things. A sound, an ear, and the consciousness that arises. Two things and then the consciousness. The other way that consciousness arises is a little more closer to a kind of conventional way we think about consciousness as a ground. That there's a consciousness not based based on consciousness, free of that. 
not dependent on consciousness. And then the last way, just to give context, is that mind is used to describe true nature, sometimes called big mind. Or from the Zen poet Ryokan, he says, the Buddha is your mind. The Buddha is your mind. And the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. And he says in a kind of Zen joking way, he says, if you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you arrive? Not too many Zen people here, I can tell. (laughs) But the Buddha is your mind and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. And so we want to begin to look directly at the nature of mind. The nature of mind that the Buddha talked about in the Theravada tradition, in the tradition of the elders, as this luminous mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but colored by the attachments that visit it. That the mind gets obscured by the attachments. And I would, I, we could also add the word, or substitute the word, the identifications that visit it. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This, the noble follower of the way, truly understands. So for them, there is cultivation of this mind. So if we're going to look at the mind, it's very helpful to begin to look at the attachments of mind the identifications of mind. If we want to begin to see what is this luminosity? Where is this luminosity? And that part of the process of mindfulness is to begin to disidentify with attachments and identifications to begin to let go in order to allow the luminosity to reveal itself, the nature of mind to show itself. So um, this is going to, we're going to try a few things. We're going to play a little bit tonight and see, you know, what might work, what might be helpful. Um, So if you're willing, I would like you to identify with this bell. This is a kind of pretend. Pretend you're this bell. It's like a gestalt exercise or something. You know, pretend you're this bell. I'm a big bell, I'm a beautiful bell. I get to sit right up front the whole time. You know, I really got a deep sound. Right? You know, just see what it's like to identify with the bell. And then notice what it happens when I do this. So you're the bell, what happens? Anybody? You vibrate? Pardon? You're disturbed? Okay. You feel lovely, right. Uh huh. What else? Energy goes out. Beautiful. Okay. So you see, we identify with something, we have an experience. Now, watch this. What happened? Pardon? Contraction, right. 
Okay. Anything else? Anybody notice anything? Fear. Fear. Uh-huh. Sure. Fear the bell. That looked kind of scary. Curiosity. Curiosity? Okay. Okay. Some people like to live on the edge, right? Okay. So now, don't identify with the bell. Right? You're not the bell. See what happens. What happens? Nice sound. You feel it coming into your body. Uh-huh. You see the difference between, yeah, we're doing a very simple, you know, exercise about identification and not identifying. Everybody get a sense of the difference here? Okay. So here's the Buddha teaching the same principle. Here's the Buddha's words to his monks. He says, how do you construe this, monks? If a person were to gather or burn or do as he likes with the grass, twigs and branches and leaves here in Jetta's grove, would the thought occur to you, it's like this, it's like that, um, it's like this person is gathering, burning or doing with this, with I've got this wrong. Huh. If the thought would occur to you, it's us that this person is gathering, burning, or doing with as he likes, right? Okay. And they answer him. They, he, they say no. And he says, why is that? He says, because those things are not ourself. The leaves, the grasses, the twigs are not ourself and do not pertain to ourself. And the Buddha says, even so, monks, whatever is not yours, let go of it. Whatever is not yours, let go of it. Your letting go of it will be for your long-term happiness and benefit. And what is not yours? What is not yours? And here he gives the teachings of disidentification and non-attachment. And he says, form is not yours. Form meaning the body is not yours. The body, meaning the body is not self. The body is not self. And then he says, feeling is not yours. Perception is not yours. Mental processes is not yours. Consciousness, in the sense of ear consciousness, like I described, is not yours. Let go of it. And what he's describing is the ways we identify, some different areas that we identify as this is me. This is mine. This I am. And he's saying, maybe that's not the way it is. Maybe we're the stewards of this body. We care for the body. We care for our feelings. We care for our mental processes. But it may not be who and what we are in essence. What happens if you don't identify with your body? And here's the tricky part. Don't identify with your body, but don't go away from it in any way, shape, or form. Feel it fully, but see that it's, it's a body. It's here for a while. You know, if we're lucky, it'll last for 70, 80, 90, maybe 100 years, pretty much max. Is it the same body you had 
five years ago, ten years ago, twenty, thirty, forty? Or what happens if you don't push away, deny, try to get rid of your feelings, but you don't identify them as this is who I am? They're part of our experience. They're, they're being known, just like the sound is known. When we start to look at the process of identification and disidentification, we're starting to look or open up the door to see what knows. You know, Ajahn Sumedho said, the breath is like this. What's knowing that? How's it being known? We tend to identify with the familiar, with our body, with our feelings, with our thoughts. Totally common, totally conventional. But the Buddha's teaching goes against the stream, he said many times, to start to look very closely, very intimately. And the trick here, what I believe is the trick, is actually to stay right in the middle of our experience and see that we're the stewards of it. But it may not be who we are. One of my teachers put it this way. He said, let me see if I can get it. It's from Hamid Ali. He said, he said, our attachment to our body is conversely proportionate to how much we're not inside our body. That is, if we actually move fully in, there's no the attachment goes away. There's no separation for there to be someone to attach to it. And then, of course, not only do we identify with our direct experience, we identify with the various roles we're in, right? Or the name, Eugene, teacher, husband, father, bike rider, whatever role we find ourselves in, we start to identify in that way. And it's not that we don't inhabit these roles fully, but are they who we are? Are they actually who we are? Or are they roles that we live, we, we, we inhabit fully, but they're not myself? Um, there's an exercise I like to talk about with my daughter that I used to do. I don't do it so much anymore since she's grown up once in a while. But there was a certain point when she was, I don't know, 12, 13, 14. Once a year we used to sit down and do this meditation together. And we'd sit and we'd look at each other and she'd have to see that I'm not her dad and I'd have to see that I'm not her, she's not my daughter. Just for about 30 seconds just to see beyond the role, beyond the habit, beyond the idea, beyond the concept. And then to see what happens as the role, the ideas, the concept, the identification goes away, even for 30 seconds. And she used to, we do it for a few seconds, 20 seconds, she'd go, okay, okay, that's enough. (laughs) 
She was like a little weird. It was a little weird. Although she loved me seeing her as not my daughter. She loved that. What happens is, and of course she is my daughter, and I am her dad, in the relative truth. And the relative truth is very important. Very important. It's considered equally important to absolute truth in Buddhism. It's very important. The problem with relative truth is we tend to reify it or concretize it as if it is absolute truth. And so it ends up obscuring something deeper that's also true, that sometimes we call ultimate truth or absolute truth. And so then to see each other, for her to see me and me to see her beyond our ideas and our history and our habit and our roles, all of a sudden it's a mystery. Who is this person? Who is anybody? Who are we? And you can do that little exercise with anybody you're close with. Or even people you're not, although they get even weirder about it. (laughs) If you do it with your boss or something, I'm not suggesting that. Okay. So to continue to investigate a little identification, disidentification concepts. Concepts are key here because we relate very strongly, we believe very strongly in concepts, and it often obscures reality. The concept can, concepts are useful, concepts are great. Everything I'm talking about right now is through concept, right? So I'm not really, I don't want to denigrate concept, but I also want us to consider its limitation. Take a look at your hand for a second. Think of all the concepts, all the things you know about the hand, all the concepts that are there. It's a right hand, the left hand, skin, skin has color, texture, there's lines in the hand, there are bone in the hands, there's blood in the hand, there's veins, there's tendons, there's ligaments, there's um, nails, there's a whole history of concepts, right, with what this hand has done, how it works, Maybe it gardens or writes or paints. Um, maybe it throws a ball or swims or whatever it does. Okay? A lot of concepts here. Now shut your eyes for a moment without moving your hand. And just feel the hand letting go of all the concepts. Come into the direct experience, immediate experience. Experience beyond concept. How is that? Can you feel, sense the difference between the concept of a hand and the living reality of a hand? Anybody? What do you notice when you just come into the direct experience of the hand? alive. Pardon? Tingling. Pardon? Throbbing. Not what? Not personal. Not personal. Yeah, there's no actual self in the hand. There's this experience and this experience is here. It's not necessarily I, me, or mine in a certain way, in a reified way. 
And, you know, you could even take a minute and start looking around the room and just first noticing the concept, like teacher or podium or bell or Buddha or wall or building. These are all the concepts. And then what it's like to start to perceive the experience and not let the concept overlay it. Let the concept be very light or in the background even. Or even the concept of who's looking, self. This is from Wang Po from the Zen tradition. He says, To be absolutely without concepts is called the wisdom of dispassion. Of course, as I said before, he's using concepts to give us this idea. To be absolutely without concepts is called the wisdom of dispassion. Mind, the mind is like the sun, forever empty, shining spontaneously, shining without intending to shine. This is not something that you can accomplish without effort, but when you reach the point of clinging to no, nothing, no thing whatsoever, you will be acting as the Buddhas act. This will be acting in accordance with the saying, develop a mind that abides nowhere. Develop a mind that abides nowhere, that is not attached anywhere, that doesn't reify reality anywhere, that doesn't hold to the identification except in a light way, understanding role, concept, even the idea of self as a useful idea at times, but not necessarily the direct experience. That the concept is never the thing itself. That's the key principle. The concept is never the thing itself. And the poem from Ryokan about this mind, it's called Mushin in Japanese Zen practice. He says, with no mind, N-O, with no mind, the blossoms invite the butterfly. With no mind the butterfly visits the blossoms. When the flower blooms, the butterfly comes. When the butterfly comes, the flower blooms. I do not know, K-N-O-W, I do not know others. Others do not know me. Not knowing each other, we naturally follow the way. The not knowing he's describing is not reifying others not concretizing others with our concepts, with the roles, with the ideas, not knowing my daughter. We naturally follow the way. So, and, and this, and I'm giving you a lot of concepts, right, tonight, a lot of ideas. This is where it's really important to stay with your body It'll, it actually works better if you don't try to figure out what I'm talking about. <laughs> I mean, it'll come, it'll happen, you'll think about it, you'll figure out, but don't stay, the living presence that's already here is a little bit what I'm trying to point at. And I'm trying to point at it through deconstructing attachment, identification, concept so far. So continue to look at the luminosity or this mind that shines without intending to shine. It's a beautiful phrase.
the teachings point to one identification, one primary identification over and over again for us to investigate. And it's the sense of self. It's a very deep identification for each of us. And one to be really um, respectful of. It's a very important identification. And we can explore this in a couple ways. Traditionally, the Buddha would explore it by using the image of a cart. Given our times, let's use a car, right? Take a car. It's a great concept, right? A car. What happens when we start to deconstruct the concept? We take the bumpers off, right? Take the hubcaps off. Take the wheels off. Take the axles off. Take the chassis from the frame, or whatever it is, the bottom, the frame. Take the fenders off. Take the hood and trunk off. Take the, diff- the engine out. Take the engine apart, all the different parts of the engine. Start taking the seats out. Take the radio out. Take the CD player out. Take the, like, I don't even know what they have, the computer out now, the television out. You know, whatever that, whatever's in the car these days. Take the steering wheel out, the, the dashboard, the panel, everything comes out. We have a big pile here. Where's the car? Is there a car anymore? There was a car. The car was a concept that hold all those parts together. Car was a concept, a useful concept. Some of those concepts ride really smoothly. But we tend to take that concept as a permanent thing, as something solid, as something um, we reify, the concept, and we miss the impermanence, the lack of permanence in the concept. Let's take another example that the Buddha would use. Eugene. Eugene is a concept, right? Like Pamela is a concept, or Adrian is a concept, or Philip is a concept. These are really good concepts. I like these concepts here. But what happens if we start deconstructing Eugene a little bit, right? Take the nails, put them in the pile, start a pile, new pile. Sweep away the car. We'll put the nails there. Take the skin, the hair, the different parts of the body, the muscles. We put it in the pile. We take the different organs, the heart, the lungs, and the various, you know, gallbladder and liver and kidneys and stomach. Put that all in the pile. Put the bones in the pile. Put muscles, all the blood, all the fluids of the body. Put it in a pile. It's a mess, right? But what, but what do we have? Where did Eugene go? Where's Eugene in all of that? Eugene's a concept, a useful concept. Where is the sense of self? What, is, what are we taking to be ourself? And it's not that there's not something here. There is something here. As Kalu Rinpoche would say, he would say, we live in illusion in the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you discover this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. 
but it's not our usual sense of self. That's what we're deconstructing so we can see what Kala Rinpoche said, there is a reality and you are that reality. I'll tell you a story. Let me see time. I'm okay. This is what happened to me in the dentist's office, which is a place I often meditate. I find it a very um, um, supportive place to meditate because there's not much else to do. So I'm in the, the dentist's chair, you know, and you know how they, you know, they do you like this and they've got everything wired open because they were doing a little, just minor gum surgery, just a little thing. And, and this isn't for everybody, but my proclivity, I like to watch things like that. I'm curious to what's, what's actually in the body, not just the surface. And so they said I could watch. I had a mirror and I'm watching. And there, at some point they just very gently, after anesthetizing me locally, they cut the gum and they peel back the gum. And it was just, and it was something happened at that moment. I saw the bone underneath. And literally, the literal pure bright thought in my mind was, oh, this is not me. You know, that, <laughs> that bone is not me. And it was like, and the whole, I, I don't quite know how to describe it. It was like the whole nature of reality shifted for a little while. It was like consciousness just freed. It just expanded, filled the room. It was like, and it wasn't like, this is not something I know how to do, okay? Just, you know, I'm not suggesting go to the dentist and you know, watch. But it just happened that with the disidentification, the mind started to reveal its nature. Open, spacious, unbound, free, present. So... Let's do one more conceptual exercise. This is, this is one you might be able to relate to. Let's take an idea that we have about ourselves and see what it's like if we break it down a little bit. Here's the idea. I am a bad meditator. Anybody have this idea? Okay, good. So, you know, it's an idea. We believe our ideas, our concepts. We identify with them. Sometimes we can feel really bad when we believe that one. So hold it in mind for a second. Just shut your eyes. Hold in mind. I am a bad meditator. And notice what your experience is. What's it like if you're, I am a bad meditator? What happens if you identify with that? Shut down. Shut down. Contraction in the solar plexus in the chest. Shame. Pardon? Shame. Shame. Uh-huh. Okay. Feeling physically smaller. Yeah. So okay, you know, you see, we we see the movement very clearly. Okay, let's cut off a couple words. Forget about the bad meditator. I'll, I'll let you go with that now. Just say, I am. Just identify with the words I am. Let's see what that's like. I am which I'm sure you've used that phrase many times in your life. I am. I am. And what happens there? What do you notice? I am. 
You're happy, okay. Powerful. It's powerful. Lighter. Pardon? Lighter. Lighter. It's lighter than I am a bad meditator, that's for sure. Expanded. Expanded, okay. Presence. Pardon? Presence. Present, okay. Let's try one more. How about just I? Just stay with I. You've used the term, I don't know, half a million times. I. 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 What happens? Contraction. There's some contraction here, okay. Confusion. Confusion, uh-huh. Separateness. Separateness, uh-huh. Okay. Okay, and just one more. Let go of the eye now. Shut your eyes. Let go of the, all of it. What happens? What do you, what, what do you notice? The expansion returns. Expansion returns. Awareness. Awareness. What else? Relaxing. Relaxing. Freedom. Freedom. Anticipation. Pardon? Anticipation. Anticipation. Oh, <laughs> uh-huh. well, that, I might try to, I might language it openness, okay, open. Now, anticipation, okay. So give you a little flavor of what happens as we let go of different ways that we identify. There's a description in the Tibetan, a very beautiful description in the Tibetan tradition of the nature of mind. I'll read you a little bit. And what I'd like to suggest is as you feel your body and sit here, you also begin to turn your attention and look at the mind itself. And sometimes my teacher would, would do this. He would hold up his hands like this and he would say, turn and look directly at the nature of mind. Turn and look at your own mind. It's not something we do so often. Turn and look at the mind itself. And they say in the Tibetan, they say, there being really no duality, separation is untrue. The whole of samsara and nirvana, of suffering and freedom, are one's own mind. Although the one mind is, it has not existence. When one seeks one's mind in its true state, it is found to be quite intelligent cognizant, although invisible. In its true state, mind is naked, immaculate, not made of anything, being of the voidness, clear, empty, without duality, transparent, timeless, uncompounded, unimpeded, colorless, not realizable as a separate thing, but as the unity of all things, yet not composed of them, of one taste. Not realizable as a separate thing, but as the unity of all things. Everything is known through the mind, through the awareness. The one mind being of the voidness and without any foundation, one's mind is likewise as spacious as sky.
to know if this is so or not, look within your own mind. Look now, where is your mind? What knows your experience? What knows all experience? Rising of themselves and being naturally free like the clouds in the sky, all appearances fade away. To know whether this is true, look within your own mind. Now, as you turn, as you look, it's tricky because the language, the language can, um, can deceive us, right? I'm, I'm saying turn and look. We turn and look, we, we expect to see something. Turn and look. But then the Tibetans are saying it's transparent, timeless, colorless, empty. So we're not, we, we turn, when we turn and look, we expect to see something. But there's nothing, there's no thing there. But still, there is the knowing. The knowing is here. Rest in the awareness itself. Relax in the, awareness, in the knowing itself. You're, you're, whatever's knowing, however you are, if you're confused now, if you feel tired, if you feel excited, interested, bored, it's all being known. What's knowing your experience right now? Rest in the luminosity that shines without intending to shine. And really we're pointing at the nature of awareness itself. That it's cognizant, it's intelligent, it knows. But it's not, where, where is the awareness? It's nowhere, it's everywhere. Let's try one more. This is very simple. And then I'll let you off the hook. There'll be a test tomorrow morning, no? Um, remember, he's, he talked about the, uh, this um, awareness that shines without trying to shine. Sun that shines without intending to shine. Try this. Stop being aware. That gives us a glimpse of what we're pointing at, the nature of mind. It's here. It's not, we're not doing it. If we were doing it, we could stop doing it. Ken Wilber, when talking about the nature of mind, he said this, he says, if you attempt to see the mind as a special light or great bliss or something you start to reify, it, or a great bliss or something, you start to reify it, objectify it, concretize it. Those are objects. They are not the awareness itself. We try to make the knowing an object that can be grasped, whereas it is simply the mind that knows all objects that arise. So you won't see anything in particular. 
clouds, feelings, thoughts float by in the mind, and all is effortlessly known. Everything, the whole world, both inner and outer, arise and pass in this present witnessing awareness. The mind can only be, quote, felt, unquote, or, quote, known, unquote, as a great background sense of freedom and release from all the objects. Beginning to look at the nature of mind itself. So, I hope you're not thinking too much about this. But I hope you'll take a look, maybe once or twice during a day, as you're paying attention to the various arisings that are here, the body and the heart and the thoughts and the sounds. Everyone, just once or twice a day, just turn and pay attention to what's knowing, everything that's being known. Start to get a taste, a taste of freedom. And if none of this makes sense, don't worry about it. It's not worth it. Stay with yourself. Stay with your practice. Stay very intimate. Let's sit for a moment, please. And don't do anything. Just sit. end with a poem from Emily Dickinson that I've love and I've changed one word a little bit just to fit the talk she says the mind is wider than the sky for put them side by side the one the one the other will contain with ease and you beside. The mind is wider than the sky, for put them side by side, the one the other will contain, with ease and you beside. The mind is deeper than the sea, for hold them blue to blue, the one the other will absorb as sponges, buckets do. The mind is just the weight of God, for lift them pound for pound, and they will differ if they do as syllable from sound.
This talk was given by Eugene Cash at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on June 23, 2006. It is an offering of the